happy Wednesday. I'm Tamara Crawford here with Fina Orden, and this is the Lift Up Podcast, inviting you to discover empowering reads by marginalized writers. In this episode three, we will discuss two works of poetry, The Tradition by Jericho Brown and Night Sky with Exit Wounds by Ocean Vong. The Tradition by Jericho Brown, published in 2019, is an amazingly crafted book of poetry that seeks to explore varying facets of tradition, such as the sonnet tradition, the tradition of racial injustice in this country, such as the U.S., the tradition of continuing to plant gardens. He explores these points of tradition using themes of Blackness, queerness, whiteness, Western mythology, and education. It has been listed as the 2019 finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry and long listed in 2019 for the National Book Award for Poetry. It was also nominated in 2019 for the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work for Poetry and the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. In 2020, it was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, as well as listed as a finalist for the 2020 Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry. Night Sky with Exit Wounds by Ocean Vong, published in 2017, is Vong's poignant debut poetry collection that deals with the impact of war and migration over three generations. Described as a significant voice by poet and chair of judges of the T.S. Eliot Prize, Bill Herbert, it has won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2017, the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, as well as the Whiting and Tom Gunn Awards. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Hey, Vina, how are you? This month has been absolutely crazy, hasn't it? Hi, Tamara. Yeah, it's been such a heavy month. I mean, a heavy year, really, with all of this violence against Asians in the U.S. of 150 percent. And I mean, I know that there's been a spike in the U.K. too. And Mm -hmm. all of this, of course, while we're still fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor, and at least if you follow the news here in the U.S., just essentially being re-traumatized, just watching the trial of Derek Chauvin, who was George Floyd's murderer, Mm-hmm. And so what keeps coming back to me is something that we've been talking a lot about on this show, you know, about what gets left out of history and why. Mm. And I am just so grateful for all of the Asian voices that we're now hearing. I mean, yeah. many of them point out that this violence against Asians and kind of the pitting of one minoritized community against the other, I, these aren't things. Yeah. And the the writer and activist Helen Zia, she talks about how Asian Americans are not missing in action, but missing in history. Mm. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of silence in our community about racism, um, for instance, but I also think that comes from not knowing our own history of activism and solidarity with Mm. Black and um, other communities of color. And so, 
I also think that's why it was just timely and very healing, at least for me, to be reading both of these books by poets who wrestle with their own experience of American violence and who refuse to assimilate or be invisibilized by the dominant narrative. You know, what really is the illusion of what America and being American is. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I'm glad that these works have, you know, helped you as you as you've had to deal with what's been going on, you know, in the US and mm -hmm. kind of work, yeah. you know, struggled through that. It's definitely a difficult time for our friends in the Asian American communities. And I just want, you know, before we begin, I think we just need to take a moment and ask our friends and our listeners to really take some time to reflect on what's going on right now. And how well we can show up for our friends in the AAPI community right now. So if you don't mind, I, I just want to redirect everyone to take a read of the two pieces you've written and published on Medium titled The Depth of Our Losses, Recent and Historical, and Me Too, A Letter to My Father. And I just want to ask everyone to take some time to dive into those resources and have the important conversations around race, stereotypes, hypersexualization, and just understand how dangerous the rhetoric is, how dangerous it has become, and how it needs to stop, right? We all need to challenge ourselves and our peers in our society. And, you know, just to kind of bring this back full circle into this episode, the, the crazy thing is we didn't even plan to do yeah. this episode, no, you, you know, from a podcast perspective based off of what had happened. But here we are with these two timely and relevant collections published in 2016, 2019, and still so important in 2021. I know, right? I mean, I almost wish that it weren't so, but as you say, here we are. And um, thank you for pointing out to our listeners those blog posts. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as we always try to do, uh, we put together a list of resources for places to support and learn from, articles to read that contextualize these recent incidents of anti-Asian violence within a larger history. Um, yeah. And we also link to our bookshop list, Situating Asians in America, for more nonfiction, fiction, and poetry to check out. So please do have a look at those. So back to our poets. Uh, you know, I think readers tend to assume that poetry, especially by writers of color, should be read autobiographically. And in the case of Jericho Brown and Ocean Vuong, I mean, they do speak of their poetry as being influenced by personal and collective history, as well as politics. And Brown talks about this in his interview with Krista Tippett of On Being. He says, I always understood that my poems, if I were to be writing about the father, because the subject matter of my poems, if I say father, I'm not just talking about my dad. I'm also talking about that father, God, and what I was taught in church. And if I say father, that would have resonance with fatherland and motherland, thinking about America, thinking about the continent of Africa that is unknown to me in so many ways and yet a part of me culturally. Um, and then, you know, so we definitely see this in a poem like Steak. And mm. I'll just pick out a few verses to read from that Jericho Brown poem. I am they in most of America. How old will I get to be in a nation that believes we can grow out of a grave? 
can reach, climb high as the first state bank, take a bullet, break through concrete, the sidewalk. People say bad things about me, though they don't know my name. I have a name, a stake. I settle, dig, die, go underground, root, shoot up like a thought someone planted. Someone planted an idea of me, a lie, the myth of a wooded hamlet in America, a thicket, hell, a patch of sunlit grass, where any one of us burst into one, someone as whole as we. Mm. Mm. And we also get a sense of Vong's experience of America in night sky with exit wounds. And he gives us his origin story in just a few lines in the poem, Notebook Fragments. He says, an American soldier fucked a Vietnamese farm girl. Thus, my mother exists. Thus, I exist. Thus, no bombs equals no family equals no me. I mean. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I love that Tippett also interviewed Vong. And in that interview, he talked about how he learned about the Vietnam War in school. And, um, you know, it, it kind of starts out funny that there were these five chapters that he remembers having to learn on George Washington and, you know, all about his wooden teeth and chopping down a cherry tree. <laughs> But then just two pages about how something bad happened in Vietnam and that the Americans were heroes. So in college, he wasn't prepared to see hundreds of dead bodies, Asian bodies, bodies that looked like me. Sometimes the bodies were strangled. You didn't know where one began and ended. And so I wanted for my first book to have Vietnamese bodies on the cover that were living. And I, I love that. And um, by the way, I just can't let go of that cover of Night Sky of Exit Wounds. So it's a Vong at age two, and he's flanked by his mother and aunt on both sides. And this photo was taken refugee camp in the Philippines. And he talked about how they paid a photographer with their daily ration of three cups of rice. Just that photo. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's also so interesting what he said about his second book. It, it's a novel in this case, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which does revisit some of the themes and the, the scenes from Night Sky. And he says, a novel is at its core one person trying to know themselves so thoroughly that they realize in the end, it was the times they lived in, the people they touched and learned from that made them real. I wanted the book to be founded in truth, but realized by the imagination. I wanted to begin as a historian and end as an artist. Um, just, yeah. I, I just love the way Ocean speaks and I've been <laughs> lucky enough to actually see him live at an author panel and you know, it's like completely unscripted, but still he has this way of just being so thoughtful and deliberate and just naturally poetic when he speaks. Uh, I wish I conversed that way, but <laughs> maybe I need to write more poems or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is amazing that you've seen Ocean Vong in person in an author panel. I watched his 2019 interview with Michelle Martin on Amanpur and Co. and was struck by what he said, especially in response to her reading that portion of Notebook Fragments mm. and his thoughts about writing it. In particular, that line which stuck with me and where he notes that as a product of war, there is no right or wrong to explaining 
how he has come to exist in this world. But he additionally offers a take on how he particularly views things in which he says, you can be a victim, but whether you live in victimhood is up to you. And I found that mm. interesting because we see this in his poetry. We see yeah. this sense of rawness and, you know, some, and pain and what Michelle Martin mentioned, anger to a certain extent. But then you also see this gentleness and love and understanding amongst some of the most difficult and traumatic experiences and themes. And I also found with Jericho Brown's poems, that rawness, that pain, that desire for reckoning within his poetry, but also a sense of moving forward and growing and continuing to plant and nurture, despite everything that he has experienced, that Black Americans have experienced. And one of my favorite poems of his that illustrates this is Four Day in the Morning. And if I pick out a few verses here, it says... I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these hmm. words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blossoms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue. I'll never know who started that lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at four day in the morning, <laughs> toss him in a truck and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go to work for whatever they want. My God, we leave things green. Yeah, I really, really love that poem too. And one of the things that I appreciate about both these poets is just how accessible their poems are uh, to people like you and me mm -hmm. who, you know, we're not yeah. holed up in some ivory tower, right? <laughs> it, it actually reminds me, uh, I, I don't know if you caught any of it, but um, how the former youth poet laureate, Amanda Gorman, just, I felt, completely stole the show in Biden's uh, presidential inauguration with her poem. It was amazing how that poem just went viral among people yeah. from all walks of life, not necessarily, you know, someone who loves poetry, right? Seriously, um, yep. And uh, in a Bennington Review interview, uh, Brown shares a bit of his philosophy about writing as well as teaching poetry. So he's a professor and he's actually the director of creative writing at Emory University. And he says, no matter the race of the poet, I'm much more interested in a poem that is like the life we live. I want a poem that is like, I saw people get shot at the synagogue today and I had a sandwich and I miss my daughter. And in actuality, that's what a day in our life looks like. And the poem has to carry the tones of all those emotions. Uh, I just love that. And um, mm -hmm. Vong also makes an interesting observation about how the quote unquote language we learn in school, you know, this sort of wrong mm -hmm. or right kind of English is actually arbitrary and exclusive, especially to people of color. He says, mm. in fact, language is always changing. And I think it's the poets and even the youth, they're using language to cast new meaning in the same way Chaucer just winged English spelling because there was no standardized spelling then, uh, which I yeah. thought was interesting. Um, you know, but more than that, what is just so exciting for me is how they challenge that exclusivity and that 
dominance of you know a western eurocentric mode of writing and also teaching poetry um i mean vong teaches at at amherst uh, as mm -hmm. well and they both poems called Trojan, same exact title, uh, for mm -hmm. example. And I'm just amazed how they make us look at, um, and this is something you mentioned, you know, this common or traditional trope of lyric poetry, Greek mythology, but in fresh and surprising ways. And yeah. um, so Brown's poem Trojan is about being in this physical, primarily sexual relationship with someone. And it makes us think about um, the sort of cultural glorification we have of this, this kind of aggressive masculinity and of war. Um, and then you have Bong's poem, which is just as intimate, but is so different. Um, I mean, it's just uh, this heartbreaking and at the same time defiant portrait of a young trans person who hasn't come mm -hmm. out yet. And it's really such a delicate poem. And I want to read a bit from the beginning of it. A finger's worth of dark from daybreak, he steps into a red dress, a flame caught in the mirror, the width of a coffin steel glinting in the back of his throat. Look at how he the bruised blue wallpaper peeling into hooks as he twirls, his horsehead shadow thrown on the family portraits, glass cracking beneath its stain. Wow, <laughs> so beautiful. And you know, I, I agree, I mean, poetry is interesting and so different from reading fiction, I mean, for me, I actually find it more difficult than fiction because it's really subjective how a poem might speak to or resonate with the reader. And I find that a collection of poetry is something that you can't just sit down and read it like mm. a book. Sometimes it takes, you know, you gotta take a few passes at a poem and try to understand it and, and gather what it means to you. And I also really find it interesting that both poets reevaluate poetic form, like you said, through takes on Greek mythology or Eurocentric forms. Slightly going off tangent here, it reminds me of the work of Harmonia Rosales, an Afro-Cuban artist who invites viewers to reimagine or reevaluate the Western Eurocentric notion of beauty through her paintings, hmm. which take, you know, classic European artworks and provides a view where they are instead painted as representations of the African diaspora. And similarly, in these collections, we're seeing how both Vong and Brown provide similar reconstructions and inventions of form, you know, such as Brown's invention of the duplex and Vong's take on Dante's Inferno with his poem, The Seventh Circle of Hell. <laughs> um, you know, with the with the seventh circle of hell, this is a poem reflecting on the murder of couple Michael Humphrey and Clayton Capshaw in Texas in April 2021 by immolation. And it's printed as a series of arranged numbers suspended across the page, followed by the verses as footnotes. Now, Vong had started out writing this poem as a quote-unquote traditional poem, but felt that it didn't portray the horror of their murder in the manner he wanted and had abandoned the poem. 
However, he later went back to it and reworked it after reading about violence in scholarship. Hmm. And he talks about this in an article for the Poetry School and where he says, I originally wrote the poem in tercets, echoing Dante's terza rima format. It was not until three years later, while reading a critical work on violence and scholarship, did I see more clearly the footnotes on the bottom of the page. I found myself slipping right to the notes as I progressed, reading them first. They hmm. possessed in that reading an urgency that began to stitch itself into a fabric of broken utterances fused together by parataxis. It was in a way found poetry. That gave me the idea to rework Seventh Circle of Earth into a piece written entirely in the footnote. This time, the vast and utter emptiness one confronts on the page felt more faithful to the violent erasure of the two murdered men. It felt right to begin the poem with its own vanishing. Hmm. I hope that the form speaks, enacts also for those in the margins who are perennially silenced the footnote can be a place one gets to tell one's story. That, because the main stage has been obliterated, does not mean all hope of speech is lost. And in rereading this poem, after understanding a bit more about Vong's process, as well as researching the events that, you know, I admit I hadn't heard about until I read the poem, the connection here is not lost on me. Um, the emptiness of the page followed by, you know, the poem as footnotes just amplified the sense of horror at the immediate erasure of this couple. And I, I found it to be a really powerful poem and all the more so with it be, being written in this format. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just what's so powerful about poetry versus, you know, say reading or tuning into the news about these horrific events. And to be honest, I think we become numb to a sort of onslaught of like one tragic story after another on the news. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, just like you point out, poetry is a slower form. And so it does force you to sit with something, to think about it, uh, to feel a range of emotions instead of what we normally do uh, after watching the news, you know, just simply moving on. <laughs> and yeah. um, I that you make to art too. Kande Wiley does a similar thing as Rosales. Uh, oh. I, before he painted Barack Obama's presidential portrait, um, he mm -hmm. was probably best known for reimagining these old master paintings that we see at the Met, uh, but with black protagonists in them and it, they're just so powerful and what he did was to kind of invite everyday people into his studio you know like these beautiful men from the streets of Harlem and LA and um, there's actually this fun fact I worked with um, one reporter at WNYC and shout out to Darnell Jefferson if you're listening right now I might just have <laughs> to send you this episode and he ended up being uh, one of Wiley's models. Uh, and it was for this portrait called uh, St. Dionysus. And I think just for a little bit of fun, we will keep that story uh, in our blog <laughs> when our transcript comes out next week. Um, 
But there's another artist I love, and that's the uh, Nigerian-American Toyin Oji Odutola, who mm. she did this series of really brilliant pastel and charcoal portraits and um, imagining what the world would have looked like if colonialism and the slave trade never happened. And so, you know, might be biased, but I really do think that the most exciting art, the most exciting writing um, is that's happening right now is actually coming from creative people of color. Mm -hmm. um, and to tie it back to the poems, you know, I think what these artists and what Brown and Bong are doing um, is reflecting that dominant white gaze, also reflecting on their own identities. And the two that stand out for me in terms of these ideas is Brown's poem, Dark, and Someday I'll Love Ocean Vong. Um, and so this is another tradition in poetry that I think the two men break. And um, you may or may not remember, uh, but you know, there's that uh, poem that we all probably had to read in high school or something, um, Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. Uh, I, I, I look back on it and it's actually a really long poem. So I don't think I've ever read through the end of that poem. <laughs> But, um, you know, I think people are familiar with the, the beginning, which is um, I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Respect, especially uh, after reading poets of color like Brown and Vong and also um, being in this moment. I mean, I just felt after reading that, um, you know, for the first time in a long time, I was just like hit by Whitman's ego. <laughs> yeah. um, but then also, you know, his privileged perspective in assuming that we all share a common experience. Um, I mean, like in that, the last couple of lines of that verse and in that last verse, for every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you. In contrast, even though Brown and Vong, you know, they, they are self-assured uh, in their own way, but they're also full of self-doubt. And so when they mm. write a poem of like self-affirmation, um, you know, it, it's going to sound very different. Uh, yeah. And um, I, I actually appreciate how uh, Brown, you know, he can be so serious, but then also poke fun at himself at the same time in a poem like Dark, which goes... I am sick of your sadness, Jericho Brown, your blackness. I'm sick of your good looks, your debates, your concern, your determination to keep your butt plump, the little money you earn. I see that you're blue. You may be ugly, but that ain't new. Everyone you know is just as cracked. Everyone you love is as dark or at least as black. And then there's Someday I'll Love Ocean Vong, which, uh, contrast fear and hope in lines like don't be afraid the gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer and failing the most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed and remember loneliness is still time spent with the world um and also going back to something you mentioned earlier, I, I really love this form that Brown invented called the duplex. And yeah. um, right now uh, for National Poetry Month, I'm participating in a decolonized 30 for 30 poetry challenge, 
where I've been trying out non-Western poetic forms, um, particularly something called the Dalit, which is an indigenous form of Filipino poetry uh, that was actually reappropriated by Spanish friars to convert us natives to Catholicism. Um, mm. And now, you know, I might just have to try and write a duplex, I guess. <laughs> um, and so the duplex is actually a mashup of other poetic forms, most noticeably uh, the Ghazal an Arabic form and mm. um, the Malay form pantoum where uh, certain words or phrases are repeated either at the beginning or the end of each verse. Um, and so the tradition is broken up into three parts and each of them starts with a duplex poem. Of the second duplex, which starts, a poem is a gesture toward home. It makes dark demands I call my own. Memory makes demands darker than my own. And then it ends. No sound beating ends where it began. None of the beaten end up how we began. A poem is a gesture toward home. Wow. Wow. Those are such beautiful poems. Yeah. The, the duplex is so interesting. And, you know, I've been following your Dali form poems on uh, <laughs> Instagram and I've enjoyed them. So I can't wait to read your next poem in the duplex form. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if I make that public. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking forward to it. Um, you know, so before we kind of sort of move on, I, I, I just want to go back and correct myself because I've realized that I have um, mistitled Ocean Vong's poem. Um, I think I've had Dante's Inferno stuck in my head this whole time <laughs> and kept calling it the seventh circle of hell. But the poem is actually called the seventh circle of earth. So just uh, want to make sure yes, that's yeah. clear and you know everybody um, will make sure that's also clear in the transcript yes. as well. We'll make that correction there. Um, so, you know, these two poems that you mentioned are, are such great poems. You know, they speak to the respective identities of each poet. Mm -hmm. And when I think of reflections of self and identity, I also think about Brown's Riddle and how this poem for me questions what is one's actual identity, not only in the frame of being a Black person, but in the frame of our existence on this planet, in the world. And it really stood out for me. And I also want to read a few mm -hmm. verses from this poem as well, because I think it's, it's so, it's so, so, so amazing, just to, just the way he's written it. He goes, we do not recognize the body of Emmett Till. We do not know the boy's name nor the sound of his mother's wailing. We have never heard a mother wailing. We do not know the history of this nation in ourselves. We do not know the history of ourselves on this planet because we do not have to know what we believe we own. We believe we own your bodies but have no use for your tears. We destroy the body that refuses use. Mm. We use maps we did not draw. We see a sea, so cross it. We see a moon, so land there. Hmm. We love land so long as we can take it. Hmm. And then further on, he says, wait, wait, what are we? What? What on earth are we? What? Hmm. Yeah. And I love how this poem for me questions identity, questions history, you know, of the US, of the world. 
the history of people who have been stolen so that it's difficult to trace mm -hmm. your own history. You know, questions the rationale of the things we use today by mentioning maps, you know, yeah. if, you, if you kind of flow that through maps to geography, to the layout of the world as we know it, you know, how we've come to use it, right? You know, land taking just, in, just because it was desired. The violence in which it has all been procured is exemplified by the sound of a mm. mother's wailing. And then he ends it with this question, what actually are we? And this is the riddle. What are we? Because for me, it's almost as if he's asking, can we really call ourselves human if this is the kind of damage you're willing to inflict? Mm, so the erasure... True. Yeah, the erasure of another human's identity that they're forever suspended in this reconciling of that identity. And I just feel within this poem, there is so much to unpack here. I just thought it was so brilliant. Ah, I know, I know. Um, and really going back to the theme of this episode, American beauty slash American violence, I'm reminded of something that uh, the great James Baldwin said. Um, he said that love has never been a popular movement. The world mm. is held together. Really, it is held together by the love and the passion of very few people. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's just striking how two very different poets from very different backgrounds end up having this kind of shared American experience of violence, but then also, as you mentioned, of, you know, beauty and of love. And really, when you think about it, I mean, that's how we defy expectations and survive as a minoritized people. So, um, you know, uh, there are two very powerful poems among the many powerful poems in both collections uh, that illustrate this for me, um, in addition to Riddle, which you just read from, and um, that's Brown's Bullet Point and Vong's Head First. And um, I, I, I know, I feel like we've been reading a lot and I hope this still <laughs> falls in the bounds of fair use, but yeah. um, I do just want to give listeners a taste of these two poems. And we all hope you go out and buy the books uh, after being so sated by our readings today. So here's a little bit from Brown's Bullet Points. I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back, and I will not hang myself with the trash bag. And if I do, I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed. When I kill me, I will do it the way most Americans do. I promise you. Cigarette smoke, or a piece of meat on which I choke, or so broke I freeze in what we keep calling worst. Um, and then there's Vong's Head First, uh, which is written from the perspective of the mother. Mm -hmm. When they ask you where you're from, tell them your name was fleshed from the toothless mouth of a war woman, that you were not born but crawled headfirst into the hunger of dogs. My son, tell them, the body is a blade that sharpens by cutting. Ugh. Wow. I can't even... <laughs> Seriously, I know, uh, I know, I know, I know. I mean, oh, that last line in Head First. Mm. How powerful is that line? That really sat with me, you know, fleshed from the toothless mouth of a war woman, mm -hmm. but crawled head first into the hunger of dogs. I mean, mm -hmm. it says to me, you know, like what it says to me is you are born to be defiant, to survive, to be strong against all that the world has mm -hmm. thrown at and will throw at you, right? 
like such a, just a powerful piece. And, you know, when you go back to bullet points again, that highlighted for me, the fact that in America, you know, Mm. Every day is about how to survive the American experience. And, you know, from, from Jericho Brown's perspective as a black man, a black yeah. person in America, and obviously with everything that's been going on, it's so relatable to so many communities. Yeah. Um, and again, those, you know, those two poems are just so amazing and representing the themes of defiance and survival. I also found, you know, two other poems that I felt kind of represented these themes, you know, Brown's After Avery Are Young and Vong's Torso of Air. I thought those two poems also resonated mm. with those themes. Um, but what I additionally found interesting about both collections is that, you know, after sharing some pretty raw and deep poems that highlight the impact of war and inequality, identity and survival, both move towards themes of love as they start to go towards the end of their collection. Yeah. And for me, two poems that stuck out on those themes were Fong's Devotion and Brown's Stay. Mm. And there's a part within Devotion that grabbed me where Vong says, or I should say writes, and so what if my feathers are burning? I never asked for flight. <laughs> only to feel this fully, this entire, the way snow touches bare skin and is suddenly snow no longer. Yeah. You know, when I read that, I felt that deepness of devotion, you know, how it makes you want to stay in one place, no longer searching that warmth that has helped to melt the coldness of snow in January, which can be a dark and isolating time of year. It was just so beautiful. And then when I think of stay, which is a short poem, and you know, since we've been giving away a lot here, <laughs> I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you all, like Vina said, go grab those collections and read them. But with stay, Day, in just five lines, you felt the longing of a lover who is entrenched in the memory of another when they're no longer there. Yeah. And it really was so touching. Yeah. Both of these poems are so touching. Yeah. And um, I, I do love that Bong ends his collection with that poem, Devotion. Uh, and if you look in the, the back of the book, he actually dedicates it to his partner of over 10 years. Aww. I know. Um, in one of the interviews I found, you know, he talks about how um, he met his partner, Peter, uh, after what he admits is a string of mostly dysfunctional relationships mm. with um, violent and self-destructive men. And I mean, some of the poems um, kind of reflect yeah. uh, that part of his life. But then just reading about how his partner, Peter, quit his own job to help Vong with all the travel and the presentations he has to do as a professor and a published writer. I mean, that's love. You know? Yeah. Um, oh. It's just so heartwarming and hopeful that both of these men have found a way um, through all the challenges uh, that we've been talking about to live, to write, and also especially to encourage young writers um, especially writers of color, to find their own voices and their own stories. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. <laughs> as usual, mm -hmm. we could keep going on and on and on here since there's just so much of these two books. I know. Um, and as you say, uh, poetry is something that you can just keep going back to and discovering meanings as you do. Yeah. But 
know, why should we have all the fun here? Like <laughs> listeners, just just go out and buy these books already. Um, and actually, you can support this podcast by buying them from bookshop.org slash shop the lift up pod one word um or since these have been very difficult times for uh, a lot of folks financially you can also borrow them from your local library and if they're not there lobby to get your library to put these books on the shelf exactly exactly <laughs> totally agree here you know with bookshop.org again you know, this is not an ad from our perspective. We just <laughs> love the model. We love what they do. We love how they support local bookshops. So, you know, you could, if you want to support your local bookshop through the link, please do. Um, and, uh, you know, like Vina said, if not, if that's not possible for you, try your local library, support your local library. We need them more than ever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to close out, we do want to give you a heads up on what we're reading in May. So we are reading two books for May. So two books again, guys. <laughs> Try to keep what up are we with doing? us. What are we doing to ourselves? Tomorrow? You know, there's, there are just so many amazing authors, it is right? True. Like, it's true. Seriously, if you guys could see the massive lists we have at the <laughs> beginning of the year of what we want to read and just the, the the amount of time we try to narrow these lists down, it you know, it, it's crazy. I wish we could get to every single book that I comes know, across our I way. Know. But uh, we're trying. We're trying, guys. <laughs> and so we've got two books this time. Again, we're going to be highlighting um, Asian American and Pacific Islander authors. We're starting with Potiki by Patricia Grace and The Son of Good Fortune by Leslie Tenorio. Yeah. So, yeah. So <laughs> feel free to send us questions or suggestions through our Instagram page again at the lift up pod. And thank you so much for listening to us here at the lift up podcast.